1: Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co hosts Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, Max. It's nice to see you today. And you, my friend. And, and you, uh, I understand you have a guest for this week's program. Yes. Uh, this week on the show is Ronan Farrow.
2: I feel like we have been attempting to book Ronan Farrow uh, ever since his first reporting about Weinstein came out. And uh, that's, a, that's a long wait.
1: It's true. I I uh, I finally found a backdoor way in, which is that uh, I spent the last several months producing his podcast, and then he yes. and then he had to come on the show,
2: and that just tied up like last week.
1: Yeah, it just finished last week. We put the last episode out uh, at like six a.m. on Thursday morning, and then he and I talked at six o'clock on Friday night. So we were we were still like very much in the throes of having finished the thing. It was um it was an intense production. It took uh it took some years off my life.
2: Yeah, is this uh like um who's got more like uh, who's doing therapy for who uh in this <laughs> in this episode? Is my question going in? I haven't listened yet.
1: It was um uh, I don't know. It was kind of mutual therapy, I think. Okay. We, great. we uh we, we work some things out, but there are probably some things uh, that listeners should know about Ronan. So he's had like a bunch of different careers. He was like a lawyer, he worked in the State Department, and then he ended up with a daytime show on MSNBC called Ronan Farrow Daily. And uh, he was hosting that show. No one really watched it. It got canceled. And then he moved into an investigative reporting job at MSNBC, and that's where he started uh, reporting about Harvey Weinstein. And then NBC killed that story. There's a guy whose name you need to know for this interview, who's named Noah Oppenheim. He was the president of NBC News, still is the president of NBC News. He comes up a lot in the uh, in the interview. Anyway, this is the
2: mo- this is the most people aired out in the show introduction uh, ever. <laughs> I think at this point,
1: <laughs> so far I just one. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, NBC kills his Weinstein reporting. He takes it to the New Yorker publishes a series of articles, wins the Pulitzer Prize, and then he wrote about that whole process in a book called Catch and Kill, and the podcast is also called Catch and Kill, and it's all new interviews and archival recording from uh, his reporting process. Ronan has broken somehow, like, more stories in the last two years than I thought was, like, humanly possible.
2: He's a young man, also. I've seen, I've seen him at uh, your office there where we taped the show. Yeah, he's a he's a, he's a young man. He's going places, Aaron. I feel like he's a young man who's also
1: taken years out of your life, which is now old. <laughs> well I think I think what 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 uh well I don't want to step on the interview too much, but what, what what came to be uh clear to me is that Ronan Farrow has just one speed. And it's like uh it's all out all the time.
2: Uh well I look forward to this one. Um hey, if you were looking to start an email newsletter, uh
1: where would you do it, Max? You know what? I've been thinking about that question for years now, and I think I'm finally ready to answer, and my answer is MailChimp.
2: I think that that MailChimp uh, is the most likely mailing list provider to be around and say like 20 years and that's just one (laughs) argument i have for why you should use them because it's a real pain if you have a newsletter and you want to like switch who's sending it out i've done this several times don't do it Uh, you have to go through the whole like uh, opting in process again you want uh you want the uh long-term uh email newsletter provider and that's mailchimp we thank them for uh bringing you the show and now here's max with ronan farrow
3: Hey, Ronan. Hey, Max. Welcome to the podcast. Very exciting to be working with you on another podcast. On a a podcast. How are you not sick and tired of working on a podcast with me?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Hey, man, this is a different thing. You know, the tables have turned now.
3: I know. The power
1: is in your hands. I know. I know. All right. Well, let's talk about making a podcast. I feel like we should start with making a podcast. You've done many, many interviews about uh, your work, but I don't think you have done one yet with someone who just worked with you as closely as I did. So I'm hoping I I feel like we should just lean into that part of it. I
3: have yet to do a a lot of interviews with uh, a guy whose work-life balance I have destroyed for several (laughs) weeks.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, that's what I need to talk to you about. All right. So it is currently 6 p.m. on a Friday. Which means that exactly 36 hours ago at 6 a.m., I hit publish on our last episode, which was not like done from the comfort of my own home, but was done from the office because you and I and a bunch of other incredible people at Pineapple Street had stayed up all night finishing the last episode. And I guess my question, man, the thing I would like to start with is, is it always like this for you? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> I will say that one of my editors at the New Yorker, uh, David Rode, wonderful journalist, uh, his daughter, who's something like seven years old, uh, has taken to screening my calls to him because she knows that <laughs> when a Ronan call comes in, it just means that uh, David Rhodes' work-life balance will evaporate for several weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but here, here's my question, right? Like,
1: I've basically been walking around like a zombie for days. Yeah, same. But is it actually the same? Because I feel like your endurance for this kind of thing seems very high. And over the course of the podcast, right, there's like uh, we talked to all these people at The New Yorker and we talked to all these people at NBC, particularly Rich McHugh, your producer there, who also basically said the same thing, which is that like when you – we were in it with them, it was like a hurricane. And then I feel like I just went through the hurricane too. But I, I, the thing I didn't understand the whole time we were in the hurricane was like, how are you so comfortable in these hurricanes?
3: <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, you know, the journalistic equivalent to that Oppenheimer poem. Like I am become death destroyer of work-life balance. And <laughs> I apologize sincerely for that. And, you know, the pineapple team was great about being incredibly invested in getting it right. I will say that this was a nice respite from like the full high octane version of that because we were, you know, recapitulating, um, in some significant part reporting that had already been out there through the New Yorker. So we did get some colorful, uh, legal threat letters, um, but, uh, it wasn't the sort of existential battle. A lot of these things are so, so, you know, it was much more in our case about the craft of getting a podcast, right, which you guys know better than anyone and, um, I think that there's also a serious element to this question, which is I probably am someone who, particularly after these last several years of breaking these stories, you know, where I really had to fight like hell to get them out, you know, starting with the Weinstein story, where my job was on the line and I was being followed around, it did make me accustomed to this constant, vibration of nervous energy and this way in which you know the story is not just a job that I go home from it's my whole identity wrapped up in it and you know the attacks when they come are not just on the reporting they're on me and they're very personal and they're about my family and I think you know it's probably something that like requires a few years of good therapy to unwind because I'm it's been a long time since I've been comfortable being comfortable, you know, and just like not feeling like I have to completely, you know, destroy myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I go back and forth on this a little because I I do think that creative people that I respect often have a little bit of this quality regardless of what they're doing. And I see it in you guys, you know, when you do your podcast work, there is a similar kind of intensity. Um, But I'm, I'm probably a particularly extreme example of that.
1: Well, let's um, let's just be clear about the goal of this interview, which is that I would like to condense those years of quality therapy into one like fifty minute conversation.
3: That's why I came
1: here, Max. I want I want a little therapy. We're going to get to the whole root of the thing. Well, here, uh, this is a somewhat therapeutic question. I will admit that, but it is one that I was curious about while we were doing this thing, which was. You Related to what you just said, basically, which is like, you are only comfortable when uncomfortable. Like, do you think it needs to feel like that for you to do this work? Like, does it need to feel that intense because you have been in that place for so long?
3: I think it's probably more complicated than that. I mean, certainly there have been stories that I've done that didn't vibrate at that incredible level of intensity and were still huge stories that were really significant. I mean, The story I broke about Jeffrey Epstein's secret fundraising relationship with MIT was like a very quick turnaround, and it was all hands on deck at The New Yorker, but only very briefly, and... It was a pretty straightforward process. You know, we had a bunch of documents. We checked them out. We did the due diligence and called all the people involved and made sure we got it right. But, um, you know, it wasn't like 4 a.m. at the office for weeks running. Um, So that's partly about the size of the story. It's partly about the fact that the story was backed by enough documentary evidence that it was very easy to prove out, relatively speaking. Even like the CBS story, which was on a larger scale and was a year plus of reporting, you know, we were so rock solid by the end and there wasn't a competitive component where we were racing to the finish line. So it was a little bit more of a relaxed pace on it, relatively speaking. It was still, you know, combative because there were powerful interests descending to try to stop the thing. But coming off of the Weinstein story, that felt like a little bit of a ratcheting down of pace. So... The answer is it does vary. And, you know, I try to be pragmatic about understanding when the intensity is necessary and when it's not.
1: Before we leave this uh, hurricane section of the conversation, there is one moment. I don't know if you remember this, but there was one moment. That really came to kind of like exemplify the uh, like Ronan Farrow all inness to me, and it was actually not <laughs> about the podcast at all, but it was about your MSNBC show, and particularly the theme song of your MSNBC show. So, what one people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one thing that people should know, listening is like it was not like you were like uh, coming into the studio, reading a script, and heading out. Like you were intimately involved with every aspect of the production, including the music. And at one point you told me kind of like offhandedly that you had written the theme song for your MSNBC show and played it. (laughs) And I was just like, that explains everything.
3: I know, I know. And it really wasn't like, like we never mentioned that on air. It wasn't a vanity thing. It was really like I was in there with this great producer that they had in-house at MSNBC, who was mostly like some combination of pulling library music or kind of doing a little like faux orchestral thing for election coverage specials, and I was like... I want a banger <laughs> of a theme song for this midday cable show no one is going to watch. And we were, you know, experimenting with different guitar sounds. And again, like wonderful to have a collaborator who's willing to go there. And in the end, I just like I wanted a certain kind of backing vocal and I wanted a certain kind of guitar jingle. And I just, you know, said, fuck it and got on guitar there. And I think, you know, we both he and I did guitar on that track and a little bit of vocals in the background. <laughs>
1: it's so perfect, man. It feels like this perfectly Ronin story. But, but it made me wonder when you told me, like, like, have you always been watching? wired that way, not just on the music front, but like the maybe perfectionism is not quite the right word, but it's in the right genus, you know?
3: Yeah, I think the perfectionism is the correct genus, correct as in accurate as a description of me, not correct as in it's the right life choice, but (laughs) it has always been the frequency that I vibrate at. And, you know, I would require deeper therapy to honestly answer why that is. I think it flows from a lot of things. I think it's, you know, a childhood that was filled with wonderful opportunities, and I mostly focus on that, but also certainly fraught with, you know, scandal and real heavy shit, death and destruction and crimes and losing people close to me. And um, I think wanting in the midst of that storm to uh, do work that really mattered and stood on its own, you know, to have anything that I did actually be recognized on its own merits. The bar was very high for me because so often, you know, early in my career, even when I was doing something totally unrelated, it was just impossible to get out of the shadow of all that. You know, I'd be in Pakistan announcing, like, a, you know, a water infrastructure project when I was in my State Department days. And, you know, even, like, there, <laughs> the press would be at like, Pakistani local newspapers would be like, but what about your family, <laughs> you know? So I, I think probably there's a lot of things that play into it, but maybe it's just intrinsic to my biography.
1: When you were doing that, when you were working at the State Department and when you were uh, a lawyer... What were you looking for in those jobs that you didn't get that you seem to have uh, found now?
3: You know, I think on the noblest level, I would aspire to be motivated by. I wanted to make a difference. And, you know, my mom was super Catholic and also then a hippie. So, like, not totally devout in all the traditional ways, but certainly I think retained this very fierce, almost like hair shirt Orientation toward public service and the greater good, as opposed to just personal happiness, and and sometimes at the expense of personal happiness. So I'm not saying this is like always the the best mindset for self care, but I definitely, you know, it was inculcated in me from an early age. You know, you're here to make a difference for the better. Um, happiness will flow from that if it comes at all. So. Going into law school, I knew that I didn't necessarily want to be a practicing black letter lawyer. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to go to Yale Law, where they are famous for uh, not really teaching black letter law. I mean, it's kind of a, an in-joke about law schools. They, of course, turn out wonderful practicing black letter lawyers, but they're sort of more known for the human rights lawyers and the law professors and the Supreme Court justices. Um none of which I am. I'm barely a competent lawyer at all. I just pay my bar dues. But I think it was a good place to go if you wanted to be a lawyer who was using the education as a springboard towards other public service-y things. So when when you actually were were doing that or
1: at least getting into the State Department, like, I understand that you went into it thinking, okay, maybe this is a place where I can make a difference, but you didn't stay. So I, I guess I'm wondering what journalism provided that that other
3: career did not? Well, two things. I mean, one on that question about what the State Department provides and doesn't provide, and I think this is true of a lot of forms of foreign and civil service in the American government. It is not a culture of individualism, and I admire profoundly the kinds of diplomats that I profiled in War on Peace, you know, the people who over the course of decades, are in a system with lockstep compensation and recognition. And, you know, they are signing up to be very important parts of a larger machine that keeps our government running and keeps us safe. And And that book is a celebration of, of that kind of work. But I don't know that I was a good enough person to say, okay, now I'm going to take 20 years to be you know, a smaller part of a a larger solution. I mean, we really, we need that. And I think it can be a wonderful life that's full of fulfillment and adventure and is also um, a difficult life, depending on where you're posted. But, uh, you know, I had already, and this brings me to my second part of the answer, been telling stories in various ways. You know, I started in print journalism in terms of op-eds and short-form commentary uh, very early in life. You know, my first Wall Street Journal pieces were in my mid teens and I was in a lot of places where there wasn't a tremendous amount of access for the press like the time I spent in Sudan and I was talking to people with some pretty heavy and important stories and I had already started kind of writing to frantically try to get those stories out and you know that then led to TV talking about pieces that I had written and then led to the show and there was therefore always that through line of journalism or storytelling in one form or another
1: it's interesting that i mean that all makes sense to me hearing you tell it and from the outside like before you and i started working together it didn't feel that way like it felt much more kind of disjointed and to be honest like a little confusing like i Mm -hmm. I think that your career was slightly confusing to me before i didn't really understand how you had made those transitions, but then the biggest one that I didn't understand was how you went from like midday cable news host to Pulitzer winning investigative reporter. Like, my experience from it, as someone who pays relatively close attention to this stuff, was just like, that it happened so fast. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, I know now that it didn't happen overnight for you but it did feel that way to me and you got into this in the podcast a little bit about this time at NBC but one thing that I don't think we touched on there and I don't even totally know the answer to this yet is after that midday show got canceled you know you had this period on the investigative unit at NBC and you did a bunch of stories there but if you can think back to that moment or even the moment when you were hosting the daily show like what were your ambitions at that point? Like, where where did you want to be?
3: Well, I think it comes back to that cocktail of motivations that I talked about where there's always a little voice saying, hey, are you doing everything you can do to make the world a better place? And then there's also the other kind of voice that I think runs through a lot of us, which is just like, I'm super ambitious and wanted to do something significant, you know, that would be exciting. And that's like ego, right? <laughs> uh uh-huh. So the combination of those things made it make a lot of sense in some ways to go from that kind of print reporting I was doing to anchoring. And, you know, I came to love and respect the institution of anchoring, too. It really I didn't become a good broadcaster until I put a shitload of hours into it. And people who do that well, I have a ton of respect for Especially as right now, it's it's a little bit of a dwindling institution, right? It's not those jobs don't hold the cachet they held. Even when I went into it, people are consuming news in different ways now. It's not as much centralized in, in the form of TV anchors. Uh, but it's a hard-ass thing to do. Well, and, and like all great TV anchors, you uh,
1: started by writing your own theme song.
3: <laughs> wow, you're just never going to let me live that down. <laughs> Definitely um, not. You know what? It's a damn fine cable news jingle. Uh <laughs> you know the the experience of doing that though was to run up against both the parts of it that i really love and respect and also the ways in which i think it w- it is intrinsically frustrating and maybe one of the reasons why it is a bit of a dwindling institution that particular kind of reading the headlines straight in the middle of the day you know that that is a very fungible product yeah uh, you can get those headlines now on twitter you know, on your New York Times app in a million different forms and a million different devices. And I always chafed against that. You know, I I think the idea in terms of my TV presence was always that, you know, I wanted to get in it to do meaningful storytelling that would expand people's horizons in some way. But you can't start there. So I was honored to have a midday cable anchoring job. But very quickly, I started, (laughs) you'll be unsurprised to hear, I started really chafing against a pipeline that is like, if you're going live at 1 p.m. with an hour of breaking news coverage, you can't be too fussy about the scripts, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're coming in first thing in the morning, a bunch of producers are writing a bunch of different surface-level news of the day segments. You've only got a few minutes for each one, and they're, they kind of have to be just okay because there's a lot of moving parts, and those teams that do kind of low-rent-ish cable shows are, are small and they're scrappy. And you can't really push the production uh, pipeline that much beyond that. You know, you, you, you can do so-so scripts and fill an hour and hopefully make it as good as possible because you're doing smart interviews and you're picking smart topics. But there's limits. Mm-hmm. And I was always running right up against those limits. You know, I was always, like, getting in early to try to, like, write the great american cable news segment every day you know? right. <laughs> whatever that is i don't <laughs> even know what that is but you know and i loved actually the breaking news anchoring i would do things like go out to paris during the charlie hebdo attack and like be on the scene with no teleprompter and just doing all the interviews live like that had real sizzle and was fun and challenging and we got great reviews for that But where it would get frustrating, Max, was, you know, you're in the middle of the day in, like, a hermetically sealed studio uh, in New York at 30 Rock. You know, you've got a great team trying to make it as good as possible, but there's not that much going on, and it's not a format that naturally lends itself to going deep. So you wind up in these, like, news deserts where you know, God, the months where we covered the missing Malaysia plane. And there's no actual news happening on the Malaysia plane, but God bless him, Lester Holt would come in and run like Microsoft Flight Simulator and (laughs) (laughs) try to like make small talk about the lack of news about the plane because, you know, you're in a fight with CNN and they're hitting the plane headline seven times an hour and that's cable news. And so that's a little bit the dark and frustrating side of it, that you really realize at a certain point you're not expanding horizons or enlightening. You're kind of just... It's an advertisement-driven medium, and you're trying to keep up with the Joneses and hit the same headline that some executive has decided is going to be popular over and over. And it's hard to break loose of that limitation when you're in the middle of the day. So ultimately what I started doing was using that format in a non-conventional way for, you know, when I couldn't be in the midst of a real breaking news story in the field, because that's expensive and rare, for like investigative tape pieces. So it was all a little bit of a through line, as insane as the bouncing around seems from the outside. For me, it was, you know, wanting to tell deeper stories and maybe move people and motivate change. And by the end of that MSNBC show, I was already doing, you know, 30-minute taped pieces on overprescription at VA hospitals and, you know, spending my weekends out in the field doing those taped investigations and nobody was watching but it did get some recognition for that by the end and I was proud of the team that did it a lot of people worked hard on those
1: so you had some momentum on this front and and I feel like the NBC reporting of the beginning of the Weinstein story has been pretty well documented but there was something when we were doing the show we we did this whole episode about NBC and your relationship with Rich McHugh your producer there and basically how you guys started to work that story. But there was this thing that we didn't quite get into, which I was wondering if we could now, which is that we played a lot of phone calls that the two of you guys had uh, while you were reporting it. And you sounded like a little different to me on those phone calls than you do now. Interesting. And the way it sounded to me was that you knew what you had on your hands with this reporting, but that... You didn't know where it was going to go or how it was going to go or how you were going to kind of get there. And you and I just spent all this time together, but that's like on the other side of all of this. And to me, you just, there was something about hearing you talk about it before any of this had happened. You just kind of felt a little different to me. Um, Like there was some doubt, you know, not necessarily about the work you were doing, but about what was going to happen with it. And I guess I wonder whether that sounds right to you at all, and then whether you can put yourself in that place and help me understand how you were thinking at that moment.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to remember, as much as I focus on the privilege and opportunity that came with my life story... It also engendered a whole lot of skepticism, and so I was very much used to facing a wall of skepticism anytime I tried to do something new, realizing it had to be incredibly good and impactful to break through that, and that there was no margin for error. I was always going to be under a microscope. And then on top of that, in this specific case, you know, I was kind of down on his luck, already a has-been, you know, post-cable-news-failure kind of figure, you know, doing investigative reporting I was proud of with Rich McHugh and other producers, but only getting very niche notice for that. You know, when was the last time you heard about a television investigative reporter, right? I mean, it's not a splashy subset of that kind of work. And so I didn't have a lot of capital, for lack of a better word, Going into that process and I was suddenly finding myself up against this huge machine, you know, of the external pressures of all of these intermediaries calling and um, the legal threats eventually. And then also the internal pressures of, I'm this little guy kind of hanging on to my TV job for dear life, and suddenly it's you know all the way up to the head of Comcast, the parent company, all of these powerful figures making these decisions about a story that I had become existentially wrapped up in because I believed if it didn't break, people would keep getting hurt. And so thank God for David Remnick and The New Yorker because they didn't have any reason to take a chance on me. They were just principled enough to take a look at the evidence and realize what it was and the fact that it needed to break. Do you think they were skeptical of you too? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I think David Remnick actually talks about that, you know, saying that basically I walked in the door and I was some TV guy. And there again, there's a whole other set of biases uh, where print people are not the most embracing of sort of splashy, uh, I think, by stereotype or reputation, less substantive TV talking heads. And I hadn't done this kind of long form investigative reporting. I think the closest I had come was a cover story for W Magazine on Miley Cyrus. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't count. Uh, Sadly, it doesn't count. Although, you know what? I loved embedding with Miley, and that was a lovely process. And that piece did get good notice. I think we really got to the core of Miley Cyrus. But yes, not quite the <laughs> same sort of thing and didn't really have a lot of calling cards. And, you know, there was a name that engendered skepticism and, and a biography that and career so far that gave one very little reason to uh, take a leap on something so risky with me. Yeah,
1: I mean, the, the name that engenders skepticism is part of it that that I was interested in, which is like, you know, you know that people have this whole story in their head about you before you walk in the room. Like, my sense of you is that you you know that and are aware of that. And it doesn't seem to bother you very much. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested in that. I walk in a room, nobody knows who the fuck I am. It doesn't matter. Y- you walk around in a room, people have whole stories in their head some of which are true, some of which are not, uh, about you and your life. And I wonder how you navigate that, I guess.
3: Well, I'm happy to hear you say that I pull off the illusion of uh, seeming unfazed by that. I mean, the reality is it really sucks. and. I deal with a strange combination of intense incoming energy on social media, for instance, where I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of lovely, earnest people constantly uh, saying, you know, wonderful things about me and the work I do. Um, But also, you know, there's the usual drumbeat of like, get cancer and die in a fire. um, And way worse than that, you know, very personal, below the belt stuff, just all day, every day. And I try to filter it all out is the answer. That doesn't make it easy, though. I mean, actually, that was one of the insights in that long-lost Miley Cyrus cover story, that she was at a peak of fame when I spent time with her. It was right after Bangers had come out, and she had just had that like VMA controversy not that long before, and she was everywhere, and kind of transitioning from a childhood of stardom to a new form of adult stardom, and I think was really grappling with the weight of that at the time and you know she in a much more extreme way than i ever have has to deal with that quality of life that you talked about where everyone has some narrative in their head whether it's right or or not and she was just coming to the realization at the time like oh i i can never look at my social media mentions i cannot have a google alert for myself like i have to find a way to shield myself from that otherwise it'll destroy me and i think That is a a lesson that is very true and has been borne out for me over and over again. Look, ultimately, the conclusion I come to is none of that matters. What matters is the work. And, like, if I am lucky enough to report stories that are accurate and significant and maybe inspire or move people in some meaningful way, um, that's great. And I just have to, like, have blinders on and filter out all the rest of it.
1: I have a theory about um, the Weinstein reporting in particular. And The theory is that that story, part of the reason that you were the one that broke this story that so many people had tried to break over the years, is that the people who would need to talk for that story were people that you knew how to talk to in a way that maybe was unique for a journalist. And the way that I arrived at that theory is we did this interview with... Roseanne Arquette for the Catch and Kill podcast. And she was amazing. Like, as you know, because I kept saying it over and over again, like, it was one of my favorite interviews of the whole show. She was incredible. But also, you were, like, so comfortable with her and just relaxed and in it. And it made me think about the conversation after conversation after conversation after conversation that you had had with her and so many other really famous women In order to get them comfortable going on the record on this thing that they hadn't been comfortable going on for so long. So the theory is that part of why this happened is that uh, you found a story where those things that had been hard and challenges for you previously was actually like a huge advantage.
3: It's interesting. I mean, I, I think mostly these qualities we're talking about cut both ways, because of the way in which they can engender skepticism, the way in which they can be othering, very often it's it's not an asset. But I, I think you're right that in certain kinds of reporting, it can absolutely be an advantage. In the book, I talk about how, you know, in our very first conversations, Rose McGowan was someone who was aware not just of my life story— And connections to her industry, but more specifically, and and this is the thing that I think did come into play and, and help me in getting those sources to talk, the fact that I had gone from avoiding talking about my sister's allegation of sexual abuse to writing about it in a pretty fulsome way right in that same period. So these were kinds of evolutions that happened in my character at the same time, and they're threads in my character arc in the book for that reason. Yeah. And to an extent, we kind of touch on it in the podcast, too, obliquely. I was coming to an awakening about the issue of sexual violence at a time when the culture was also sort of circling that point of interest and reassessing its feelings about it. And I think that, you know, for Rose and a number of other sources, knowing that I had kind of put myself out there and said, hey, I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, but we should be asking powerful guys accused of these kinds of crimes uh, with any degree of seriousness or credibility some harder questions, like get it together, all of us in the press. I think that did resonate. That, And it's a combination of what you were asking about, the general profile that I had, and that more specific application of it. You know, They saw that I was a a guy in a position of relative privilege who had gone out on a limb and said something incisive about this at a time when not everyone was talking about it in that way. So I think that did resonate and was a helpful entree in those conversations.
1: And how did you get Rose, and maybe more importantly, some of the women who are more reluctant, how did you get them to trust you and be willing to go on the record when they had been so reluctant before. What, what does that process look like as a reporter? Help me understand the kind of relationship between trust and transaction there.
3: Well, for one thing, it's a question that, you know, it is better to ask of them. And one of the nice things about the podcast actually is that we've been able to ask them and they've been able to talk about that in some detail. Um, but well, I mean,
1: part of the reason I ask, Ronan, honestly, is that it, this is a true thing, which is that, basically every source we had on the show ended the interview by thanking you for doing right by them and the fact that they were coming on the show was already evidence that they felt that way but i mean it was almost down the line every single person we talked to ended it by saying thank you for doing right by me and it it just made me think about what it must have taken to get them comfortable enough to go with it and I do wonder what that experience was like for you and how you approach that. And, and then also how it must be different now. Like now you can say, hey, it's Ronan Farrow. I'm the I'm the guy from the stories like, you know, what we're doing here, you know. And I imagine it must have been really different at the beginning.
3: Yes. I mean, I get emotional hearing you re- remind me of that because it's an intense relationship between any reporter and sources in a long and taxing body of reporting like that. Um, You know, you see them go through a lot emotionally. In this particular case, it was a story that took a lot out of me, you know, where my whole life was upended and I was fearful at times and um, a career I thought I was working towards went away and there was a new and different one that was at the beginning very uncertain. And because of all of that, there was a particularly heightened version of the already- intense dynamic that you have in a story like this, I was very dialed into the difficult thing that a lot of those women were doing to make the story break. And over and over again, I was seeing how they were truly motivated by public service, by wanting to protect other people. You know, the Weinstein trial has been playing out and a lot of the speeches given in court by his attorneys have been about how these women were, you know, in it to advance their careers and bandwagon onto a movement and get agents again. You know, this is something they said about Annabella Shiora, for instance. And all I can tell you is I approached these sources really skeptically, knowing that if anyone was not being accurate, it was going to be on me if I carried water for that. So we really grilled them and were skeptical of them. But I can tell you one thing that was never in doubt was their motivations. These were not people who were, like, dying to tell these stories. They were people who were immensely conflicted and only told these stories when I really made the case, hey, you can help a lot of other people. And thank God these were really good human beings who cared about that. So, you know, the, the answer to the question is, I tried to have as much empathy and understanding as possible in those conversations. There's an amount of distance that's required, and I was constantly telling these sources, I'm not your friend. I'm not here for your emotional or psychological wellness. I'm out to break a story. I was very transparent about that. Um, How hard do you push? Really hard. I mean, in terms of assessing any potential weakness in their story and stress testing their claims over and over again, you're pushing and pushing and pushing.
1: No, I mean push them.
3: In terms of trying to get them to talk? Yeah. Well, you know, here it is. You talked about the relationship between transaction and trust. That is a balance that I think all reporters feel the tension of, you know. And my solution to it was to really be upfront and just tell everyone I was working with, hey, I am in this because it's transactional. I am in this to break a big story. I don't care about your well-being as a first priority. I care about your well-being enough that... I'm going to be compassionate and try to treat you well, but I am in this to find the truth. And I think that that kind of honesty does create a little bit of a place of trust, you know, that you're putting all your cards on the table. You know, this is what I'm in it for. I'm trying to assess whether this is true. I'm searching for documentary evidence. And then having said all of that, you respect them by giving them a lot of autonomy. You know, Emily Nestor on the podcast talks about the many months we spent talking to each other and her ups and downs and deciding she wanted to tell the story in this specific way. You know, she went on the record first at NBC and then with the New Yorker. And, you know, she is someone who talks a lot about the fact that one thing that made her ultimately go on the record was it being clear that if she decided not to, I would respect that. And... That was not always an easy choice. you know. Even in the later days of that story while we were at The New Yorker, there were cases where we, for instance, had women's names from documents and could have totally legitimately, from a journalistic standpoint, named them without their involvement or permission. And in those cases where a woman would convey to me, look, I don't want to be named. Uh, this is going to upend my life. In this particular beat, this particular genre of reporting on sexual violence, I just made the decision and my editors at The New Yorker as well that we were going to respect that wish because it was such a personal thing to talk about. And not every outlet landed in that place, and I have a lot of respect for some of the reporters who did name women from documents and so forth, but I think that was very upsetting to the sources involved. So, you know, the answer to your question is you try to be honest about your motivations as a reporter. You try to be incredibly respectful of someone's wishes. You know, I was not someone who ever, when there were, you know, competitive situations on this or any other story would say, you know, you have to not talk to this other person. I would say, hey, here's where it would help me if you feel most comfortable with me, if you would stick with me until this thing breaks. But I would always throw in a, you know, hey... The most important thing is the story getting out to so work with whoever you feel most comfortable with. I would always, you know, make sure to be gracious about other reporters. You, you try to not bully or strong-arm people, up to and including letting them have the final say in whether they're going forward or not.
1: Do you think that at any point in the Weinstein process you pushed too hard?
3: No. I mean, I, I think the way that, that reporting turned out is a testament to the fact that we struck the right balance. You know, it's not so much... Um, Pushing too hard or with too much pressure, you know, I don't think I ever crossed that line. It's about persistence. You know, being a a good reporter is very often about just relentlessness. And maybe that's something that also informs the kind of level of intensity we started the conversation talking about To break some of these things, you're literally, you're like checking in with someone month after month after month, you know, still don't want to talk, still don't want to talk, here's (laughs) another reason maybe you should talk, what do you think? And I think if you can do that in a way where you're being upfront about your motives and you're saying, hey, I'm not going to force you, this is your decision, the power is with you, but I'm just being persistent and hanging in there and reminding you that the option is there, I think that's very often the way to get the goods on an investigative story
1: we uh we spent a lot of time on the podcast talking to people about the moment that the story broke and i feel like maybe one of the questions you asked the most was like how did it feel when the story was finally out in the world yeah and i don't know that i totally know the answer to that question for you and the sort of stakes of it at that moment, I feel like that I'm pretty up on. You know, like, the story gotten killed at NBC. You had, at that point, didn't know it, I guess, but had been, you know, getting tailed by, you know, Black Cube and ex-Massad agents. You'd had legal threats the likes of which no one should ever have to see. And uh, and I don't know the answer to that, man. Like, when they hit publish at the New Yorker, or whatever it was, 10.56 or something that morning—
3: what was that moment like for you? You know, the, the one of the differences between the book and the podcast is the book is, has more of my story in it, which was a little bit like pulling teeth, because especially with a background like mine, you strenuously never want to be the story, but this was one where, because Weinstein had dragged my personal background into his attacks on the story, because it became so wrapped up in my career and future, you know, there was just no way to tell it. Certainly, there was no way to tell the new reporting on NBC without going there and and being personal and vulnerable. So it's never fun to go there, and you know, the greatest joy for me would just to be able to uh, continue reporting stories that there is no personal tie to, so I can just you know do my job as intensely and as well as possible without it being existential, um, and without having to kind of painfully examine all of these things about my background and my experiences of events. But yeah, the book was one of those moments where I I kind of bit the bullet and realized to do it right, I would have to be very kind of human and vulnerable. And I did talk about this moment where the story broke. And you know, it was intense for all of us on the New Yorker team. And Deirdre Foley Mendelssohn, my wonderful editor at the New Yorker, now the second in command at the New Yorker, just got a promotion. big job. Uh, Yeah. Since our podcast aired, actually, uh, she has a new title. You know, she talks on the podcast about like watching the sunrise that morning after an all nighter working on this thing. And, you know, one last all nighter. And we were all kind of exhausted. And I felt so pummeled. You know, I did in the interest of delicately trying to strike a balance of confronting the personal as much as necessary, but not more than necessary. I ended up cutting from the final draft a lot of the stuff about my experience and the toll the story took on me. But there's still little traces, you know, gestures towards that of I really, I had not been sleeping. I had not been eating. I looked different physically by the end of that process. And I remember walking over to one of the big plate glass windows in the New Yorker's offices and like seeing my reflection and kind of being startled by the fact that I had lost all this weight and then also looking at the outside world. And it's a very still, quiet, kind of meditative place, the New Yorker. And we talk in the podcast about how you know, other outlets had at various times um, breaking stories around this stuff, like posted celebratory pictures on social media. And I wanted just for myself not even to post like a picture of the team. And David Remnick broke that up and like shoot us away. It was like, get back to work, get back to work. Come on, <laughs> we're not gonna, no, no dancing in the uh, in the end zone, um, which is one of the great lessons that I've learned from him. You know, you just, you never be self-congratulatory even for one hot second. Um, so it was a feeling of almost... Anticlimax climax in that particular moment, not in a disappointing way, just in, in terms of energy level. It was like a numbness after this long period of sleep deprivation. And, th- and then I was, you have to remember, still in this process of figuring out what my future was. You know, I didn't have a deal with The New Yorker. I had done this one story. There were other leads, but we hadn't talked about doing a follow-up story. So, it was just the opposite of anything I would have expected breaking a story like that. It wasn't like a moment of celebration. I was immensely relieved and immensely grateful for the sources. And I was hearing from them all that day and very moved by the fact that they thought we had done justice to it. And I was so grateful for those people at The New Yorker who had worked so hard. But uh, it was a strange, numb time for me that ended at the end of that day with me like bursting into tears, walking off of Rachel Maddow's set. Weird times, Max. Was any part of you nervous? Yeah, every part of me. Throughout, I mean the that Matto appearance was such an emotional roller coaster because, you know, Noah Oppenheim had said to me explicitly like I'll make sure that no talent asks about this. And it was a little bit like, you know, I had convinced myself, well, that's okay because I can just talk about the story and I don't want to distract from the story anyway by getting into the stuff about the killing of the story at NBC. But, you know, as the reporting ultimately bore out, there was a lot more to it. There was a real cover-up that went all the way to the top there. And it was an important thing. And that's why I, in the end, spent a long time investigating it and getting that bulletproof and putting it out as a book. And, you know, they've had to admit to a lot of that now. But at the time, I was really grappling with, maybe it was just an accident. Can I indulge in believing that so I can go (laughs) back to my job, you know? And I liked those people and wanted to believe that they'd have my back again. And they were dangling all that, you know. we'll, we'll. I have these texts that day from Noah Oppenheim after I had gotten threatening calls from their lawyers saying, you know, you're dumb, we've terminated you. If you ever reveal we had anything to do with this story, we're going to publicly humiliate you and, and t- tell people you've been fired. I was at such a low point that to have all these texts from that day of Noah Oppenheim saying, you know what, just kidding, we're going to call your agent again. We're going to get you back a big deal. It was very seductive. And then... So I was nervous going into the Rachel Maddow thing because I know she's principled and she did a whole wind up about the need for all of us in the media to be held more accountable and how people got hurt for a long time because the media didn't report on these stories. And, you know, I just felt so conflicted and I had promised I wouldn't go there, although I had said, you know, no, I can't lie about this if I'm asked. And I had been told people wouldn't ask, but it was increasingly apparent she was going to ask. And. I just didn't have a plan. So, yeah, the answer was I was very nervous that day and particularly nervous uh, as it kind of came to head in that moment with her. At that
1: point when that story published, did you know where you wanted to go next, what you wanted to do?
3: No, I had no idea. It was very uncertain. You know, breaking a big story is one thing, but it was only after I continued to break a bunch of big stories over the ensuing two years with The New Yorker that I kind of got more established as an investigative reporter. At that point, it was like, okay, well, maybe I did this one big story, and what's next? What am I going to, you know, can I ha- get back my future at NBC? And they they were trying to do that for a while. So and I, I didn't know is the answer. And, you know, there was no really, like, what to do the next day because I was just on this roller coaster that kept dropping. You know, I got off of that set. I burst into tears. Then I was on the phone with both Rachel and I were on the phone with, you know, our respective bosses. And I quote a lot of the transcripts of that (laughs) crazy conversations that happened that night where, you know, Noah Oppenheim was like, we got to release a statement saying we never had the story. We never had anyone on the record. And I'm like, Noah, that's a lie. I I can't. And so that went until like 3 a.m., I think. With him and with Mark Kornblau, um, who's presided over a lot of the public lying over this. He's an interesting guy. But we were up until the small hours. And then, you know, at the crack of dawn, I was on with Matt Lauer on the Today Show. And the weirdness was continuing because he was there saying, you know, you reported on this for both The New Yorker and NBC for a long time. Like it had been some kind of collaboration or something. Uh, Just like wild. And he was very uncomfortable with the topic in a way that felt strange. It was weird. And it left me feeling more uncertain than ever about my future at that point.
1: And was that a real fear of yours that you were like going to be um, like a one hit wonder?
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's one reason why I didn't go straight into writing the book. I I mean, it was partly motivated just by pure journalism that I had leads coming in and one story was leading to another. But I, you know, I did a dozen stories for The New Yorker over the course of almost two years. um, And the book was gradually coming together in terms of the reporting. But I didn't really hunker down to write it until much later than, say, like, you know, the wonderful women at The Times got down to their book after that reporting, partly because, you know, I didn't have a job at a newspaper to go back to. I was like proving my mettle in a new job.
1: Right. And then you keep stacking these stories. Like, there were some follow-ups. There was the Black Cube story, which just seemed totally nuts. And then, all of a sudden, and I don't know the exact timeline here, it started to feel like stories were coming from totally different corners, you know? There was, like, yeah. the story about the New York AG and CBS, and uh, and then all of a sudden, it was like, I mean, I, I started having these conversations with people like... Literally just like uh, going to have a drink with a writer and people would be like, how the fuck is he doing this?
3: (laughs) I'm so grateful for that run of stories. And it, it really was, you know, one set of clues leading to another and reporting being its own kind of calling card. So... You know, I did all this follow-up reporting on Weinstein's kind of infrastructure of non-disclosure agreements, and lo and behold, Karen McDougall's attorney calls and says, hey, you want to look at her NDA, <laughs> you know? Um, and that led to the first of several stories about, you know, Trump hush payments during the election. You know, Weinstein having this alliance with AMI and Dylan Howard led to a lot of reporting on a lot of the kind of coercion and burying of stories the Inquirer was doing for prominent people. You know, having worked on these sensitive stories about sexual violence led to these other stories about Attorney General Schneiderman and the CBS reporting, which was something that actually started with the first call from a source the day after the first Weinstein story broke and just didn't come out for a year after that because i was reporting on it the whole time i mean that was a big sprawling body of reporting that ultimately made it into two large new yorker pieces and triggered a lot of changes at that company and you know i found myself in an incredibly fortunate position where people were coming to me with leads and still are thank god you know knock on this wood table i have here in front of me your Um, inbox must be a totally insane place Oh, it's totally insane. And thank God for that. You know, people are still writing in. And I'm actually I have to apologize to anyone who's written in. I don't have people to look through that. I I have one research assistant right now who's a little overwhelmed by it and doing a great job gradually sifting through. So there's a bit of a lag time now in terms of my seeing things.
1: But there must be there. There have to be right now, like dozens of incredible scoops just sitting in your inbox, right? Like people must just be coming to you with their craziest stuff.
3: I'm really conscious of that, too. You know, one of the tensions of a wonderful opportunity like this podcast with a, you know, a hardworking team like yours is I'm at the Pineapple office until late at night, you know, tracking and writing and picking music and stuff. And and that's important, right, to get. That product, right? But then it is time where I'm not sifting through the inbox and doing the reporting calls. So, totally. There
1: was a part of me when you were like spending hour after hour, like sitting at that table
3: working on the yeah. show where I was like,
1: don't you have more important shit to do? Uh,
3: you know, uh, yeah. J- John Lovett, my wonderful, long-suffering partner who has dealt with me being stressed through all of this stuff we're talking about, constantly talks about this, you know, like, hey, I know you want to make sure this podcast is really good, but also, shouldn't your top priority be just doing this one thing of like, break the biggest story possible, find the biggest lead in that pile of tips and really, you know, throw yourself into it. And that's probably right. But, you know, I'm trying to find a way to do justice to the reporting while also being able to tell stories in these other formats.
1: Do you feel like the podcast ending is the end of this chapter in some way? Like that run of stories, many of which are in the book, you know, you go through the process of breaking the Weinstein story, you go on this run of other investigations, you quiet down that reporting for a little bit to work on the book, book comes out, book's a huge hit. You and I literally did the first interview for the podcast on the day your book came out. Does it feel to you now like some chapter has ended?
3: You know, it does, and I'm tempted to say it does, but I will say that I've had that feeling and had conversations similar to this at multiple points, like, ah, great, the book is drafted it, that closes a chapter and then it's like, you know, six months more <laughs> just book mania, um, you know oh, the book is finally coming out like, oh, nope nope, <laughs> we're doing a podcast for three months with a brand new reporting on all of this um, and, you know, some of the threads of reporting I'm picking up are directly related to stuff that was built in the book, so Part of me wants to say it's the end of a chapter and part of me is kind of skeptical of that and, <laughs> and feels like it's just going to go and go and go. One clue always leads to another.
1: Do you feel like um, you've made your mark? Like there was a moment when we were making the show, The Golden Globes aired. And in the opening monologue of The Golden Globes, Ricky Gervais made this joke about how everyone in the audience was hoping that they weren't going to get a call from you. (laughs) I think that was the joke. That was the gist of the joke.
3: Yeah, he said, you're all afraid of Ronan Farrow. Right. And I'm like, oh, this is why I don't have a social life. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants my calls. Well, that's one thing. But, I mean, I literally can't think of another journalist
1: for whom that joke could be made, right? Like, that is some other level of sort of uh, fame and household notoriety for doing a certain kind of work. And thinking about you on those phone calls with Rich in 2017, 2018, working on that story for the first time, that feels so far from those moments. And that was part of what I was talking about with those phone calls. But I also felt like in that moment, that cuts both ways. Like, you have reached this place now where the host of the Golden Globes can make a joke to a bunch of Hollywood luminaries about how they're all terrified of you. And that's an incredible place to be. And there must be so much coming to you because of that. But then at the same time, it made me think like, man, that's a tough act to follow. Like, uh, how do you follow up on this? Like, how do you deliver when your name is being associated with work at that level? Like, how do you keep doing it?
3: Yeah, you anticipated exactly the correct answer. I mean, on the one hand, it's incredibly gratifying and it feels great as someone who's worked really hard on this kind of reporting, often from a standpoint of being, you know, a total unproven quantity and someone who people were really skeptical of. On the other hand, it also uh, freaks me the hell out and makes me infused with the burning desire to get on to the next story or tell the next story in whatever form, whether it's a book or a podcast or uh, a cable news theme song, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> to to get back to work, you know, and do something that uh, is of use for people or, or that people get something out of. You know, there's a part of me that also is rooted in having grown up, not in Hollywood, I was really a kid in the Connecticut countryside, but, you know, around people who were veterans of the Hollywood business. And there's definitely always a little bit of a lingering sense of what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you know um, That I feel about myself and my relationship with the wider world. So, you know, I hope I get the chance to do more of this kind of work at this kind of level. And maybe at some point, Jonathan will convince me to also take more vacations. <laughs> Well, on the one hand, man,
1: for you, I hope that some semblance of work-life balance finds its way into your life. But I must say that I'm not optimistic anytime soon.
3: Well, maybe as we get farther out from the blast radius of some of these big uh, stories where I was really kind of imperiled by it a little bit, I'll become a little more relaxed and we'll do some other podcast and you'll be like, huh, he's so chill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: maybe Hurricane Ronan will just get downgraded to like a tropical storm.
3: (laughs) Right, tropical storm Ronan. You know, that's a really nice vision of the future. Fucking no way that's going to (laughs) happen. All right, hope springs eternal, Max.
1: Hey, Ronan, thank you for doing this, man.
3: Thank you. That was good. That was a real therapy sesh.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks very much to Ronan Farrow for coming on the show, for doing the other show, for doing all that reporting. The podcast we worked on is called Catch and Kill. All nine episodes are out. Right now, and if while you're listening to that interview there were some like blanks that you felt like needed to be filled in, some beat in the story, go listen to the podcast and it'll fill in all the blanks for you. But I realize now, uh, quickly, that there is some chance that you could come away with the impression that I worked on it alone. But that is not the case. I work at a uh, podcast company called Pineapple Street, and the producers there are the ones who made this show and even though they didn't work on this podcast I feel some urge to say who they are it was Eric Menel Sharina Ung Sophie Bridges Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman Emily Becker Maddie Sprung-Kaiser Barry Finkel and Janelle Pfeiffer who actually does work on this show too but she worked on Catch and Kill and um, it was hard And it was long and mostly the way that I felt was lucky. I felt very, very lucky to get to watch that group of people up close make this thing. And uh, everyone should be so lucky as to get to work with a group of people like the ones that I do. Okay, that's it. We'll see you next week.